Here we go, spring of 2021. This is the 1080 Outdoors Podcast Land Management Series, where our main focus is pursuing the truth for everyday hunters like you. I wouldn't say it's kind of an FU, it's definitely an FU. Chronicle and document how our season's going and give you real-time updates, overall land management practices. You have to find a way to hunt big buck where they are. Welcome to the 1080 Outdoors podcast, episode number 81. We have a special guest for this episode, world-renowned chef Hank Shaw joins us in a action-packed episode where we cover squirrels and rabbit hunting plus their different recipes ghetto versions of dry aging what the difference is from venison and beef best taco recipe ever and then a couple different things about not wasting prime meat and uh before we get into it i'll apologize before you listen we had some weird shit going on in the beginning it was a weird connection um, he was kind of cutting in and out, so there was it, the flow of this is kind of messed up for the first half hour, but we really do get into some really cool stuff after that, so just hang in there. It's a longer episode, but it's really worth it. I mean, we're talking about the probably premier wild game chef in the world. Um, he has plenty of books on it. If you want to go check him out, head over to huntgathercook.com. He, uh, he has a blog there. And then also join his Facebook group, which also has the same exact name as that. Um, we refer to an article in the in the podcast that's kind of about gamey meat. So go ahead and look up that gamey meat article. It's in the uh, show notes. So here is Hank Shaw. All right, we are live with Hank Shaw. Hank, thanks for joining us. You are officially on the 1080 Outdoors podcast. Is this the first podcast that you've been interviewed on where someone's actively eating one of your recipes I, it might be the second actually damn it <laughs> <laughs> all right so before yeah, the guy who was just really knocking back a bowl of chili uh during one podcast a couple of years ago <laughs> nice and i realized too that on podcasts especially when there isn't any video hearing people eat is not like the best thing in the world but yeah it's generally why you don't hear people chomping things on uh, on radio ads yeah, and it makes a lot of sense. But we're going to break that rule because we have to try this. Abe, what's your first reaction to it? And by the way, you're joined with Abe, Weston, Jed, and Jeff, but um, it's just a just a cast of characters. <laughs> no, I think it's really good. It's uh, kind of comfort food, so I like the, I like stuff with gravy on it, so it's pretty good. Big mm. gravy fan. Oh, yeah, big time. Uh, let me take a little bite here. So, Hank, what's your what's the backstory on this recipe? Yeah, I mean, it's, who doesn't like, you know, meat cutlets? I mean, I grew up with them in New Jersey, um, but it was Italian scallopini. And so, you know, the, the difference between a schnitzel or a scallopini or a cutlet is just, you know, it's just all the names, oh, yeah. all the same stuff. And I used to eat usually veal or chicken mm-hmm. pounded cutlets in sandwiches all the time when I was growing up. And then when I moved to Minnesota in Wisconsin, uh, you know, then you, you get the whole big German influence, and then you, you see the German aspect of it with schnitzel. And there's just a billion different kinds of schnitzels out there, and the two most famous are Wiener schnitzel, which is from Vienna, mm. and then Jaeger schnitzel, which is Hunter's, uh, Hunter's cutlet, which is, you know, for what we do, it's kind of perfect, no? Yeah, I now that I've tried it, it reminds me of the way that um, 
Like we just had normal deer steak cooked as a kid. Just butter, mm-hmm. flour, just fried in butter. That's probably where I always wondered where, like our, because it's a family tradition where they got that from, but most likely it came from what you just described. Exactly. If you've ever had chicken fried steak or, um, or if you're in Oklahoma, there's a thing called chicken fried chicken, which is <laughs> a chicken cutlet. <laughs> They're not stuttering. Uh, it's all from Germans, you know, cause the chicken fried steak in this country is exactly a schnitzel. It's just, it's, it's typically not done as well as a German schnitzel and since it's usually not pounded as thin and the breading is usually thicker than in, than in a German Jaeger schnitzel, but they're real similar. So the key, a big, a big key to this recipe is just how thin you pound it. Mm-hmm. And it's just a bare dusting of flour, and then you want that meat to be super, super cold, so that when you when you fry it, it's not you, it's not cooked to hell by the time you eat it. Mm. I'd say that it was pretty cold before we cooked it. Did you purposely try that, Abe? That you make sure that the meat was cold. Mm. The meat probably wasn't as cold as it should have been. It was probably closer to room temperature by the time we were done with it. But yeah. So Hank, I guess there's there there was your first introduction to us. We just pop you on the phone and start eating in front of you. <laughs> um, so we have been we have been running through your cookbook cookbook we do every Wednesday. We cook we do uh, just a wild game thing on Instagram. We've probably you've probably seen our annoying tags, but. Uh, <laughs> I think the most interesting part about the book so far is that you ended up somehow you ended up at UW in college. Yeah, it's here a in weird Madison, story, actually. So what brought you to Madison? Because you're not you don't live in Ma- you don't you're not you don't frequent Wisconsin still, or you grew up on the east end of the country. Yeah, I grew up in the East Coast, and I went to undergraduate school in New York. So there, I studied military history and and basically focusing on. Uh, colonial wars, so like the British wars in in Southeast Asia and Africa and all that kind of stuff. So I went to graduate school at Wisconsin because they had one of the best African history programs in the United States, believe it or not. So I went there to get a PhD in African history with a focus on studying military history over there. And it just, it didn't work out in the sense because with I don't know if anybody, you know, out there has ever been to graduate school, but if no. you are thinking about going to graduate school... <laughs> Didn't make it, man. Not, <laughs> not any of these guys. remember is that you need to go and work with a professor who wants to do exactly what you do. So, because my, my prof was kind of... Um, well, a pacifist is probably the most diplomatic way to put it. And so he didn't really like the idea that I was studying military history. So he and I crossed wires, so I, I left that program after a master's degree and just and became a, a cook and a, and a newspaper reporter in Wisconsin. So you, so you became a cook out of necessity, just finding a job, yeah. really, and then just kind of took off well, from you there? Well, I've, I've been into good food since I was a little kid, but, but you know, I was into cooking from, a, from the time I was a teenager. So is the uh, the Madison restaurants that you worked at still in uh, still in existence? I don't think they are. Well, one I know is not. The Horn of Africa was an Ethiopian restaurant right off Capitol Square, and that's no longer there. Um, and then there was another place called the Blue Marlin, 
and I don't believe that's open either. What's your best or craziest memory from UW? Did you did you truly have the college <laughs> experience, or were you too much of an adult in like, <laughs> PhD school? Yeah, but you know, like when you're adult is you know general term, especially in Madison, because <laughs> you know I I'm, I'm 21, so that's like kind of barely. It just means I can walk into State Street Brats and not have to worry about a fake ID. <laughs> uh, no, okay, here's the, yeah, this is a good one. So this doesn't have much to do with the actual university, but uh, my apartment was on Gilman Street, yep. right above this crappy little bar called Jocko's Rocket Ship. So Jocko's Rocket Ship, as it happens, was like a cop bar, and I was in a like a one room apartment above it. And I didn't really go to Jocko's because I walked in there as a person who lived upstairs. And I got the hair eyeball like the second I got in there. So I'm like, all right, I guess I'm not wanted. So <laughs> I didn't go to the bar that was closest to my own my own bed, which is kind of sucks. But Scooters was right across the street. Uh, it may still be. And so anyway, I used to hang out at Scooters all the time because on Tuesday nights they had nickel beer night. And it was just a Dixie cup full of beer, but still it's a nickel. And it was probably point. Yeah, I'm certain it was point. Because, um, you know, Lenny Cooper was, was, was sort of high-end back then. This was before they got bought by Miller. And lo and behold, one night on this nickel beer night, who should walk in with his entourage but Chris Farley, the comedian? Ooh. Oh, my God. Come on. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so Chris Farley walks in. And I kind of work my way over to him, and I say... Hey, man, I used to live with your cousin, Will Simons, because I did. His cousin is a guy named Will Simons, who's, uh, who's I lived with at, at undergraduate school, Stony Brook. And Farley, of course, goes, oh, my God, <laughs> the way he does, or did. And, and we just had a grand old time, and I think um, I managed to drink like $5 worth of beer, which, if you can think about it, it's a fair bet. Yeah. And... Chris was just getting started, and they moved on into the night, and I stumbled back up to Jocko's. And I walked into Jocko's, and and they're like, hey, man, you can't really be staying here. You're, you're already drunk. I'm like, just give me a shot. I'd live upstairs for Christ's sake. <laughs> and so I got a shot from Jameson's, because as you do, and ended up, you know, going back to bed. And it was, that was the end of my night. However, what I found out was the reason they were so nervous at Jocko's was because apparently – They've been selling cocaine in Jocko's. <laughs> and as I may have mentioned about five minutes ago, it was a cop bar. So, so as it turned out, I was, yeah, I was a, uh, I used to run for the Wisconsin track club. And so I was, I, I was a pretty good uh, distance runner at the time. So I was off in Iowa, um, I at a track meet. And when I came back, as it happened, like I missed the whole thing, but they busted the place. And so they, they arrested a whole bunch of cops, and they cut, shut the place down, and they, they asked me if I'd seen anything. And I said, yeah, we're pretty much douchebags trying to, you know, not letting not letting us in. And and then that place stayed closed for like six months. It was really super quiet, and then it finally opened up again. I couldn't sleep. So. <laughs> wow. That is There's that is an impressive story. story. So what was the what was the date range on that? Like what what, what years are we talking? That was ninety two to ninety four. <clears throat> And so that must have been Farley's, some of his last years? Yep, yep, it was. Man, what a individual, huh? Right? That's wild. Yeah, I had a lot of good times in Madison. I, I did a, 
spent a lot of time. It's you know one of the funny things about especially when you're in your early twenties and you your your need for sleep completely disappears. I probably slept between four and six hours a night for two years. There was a couple of years where I was in a competition to see how little I could sleep. I thought you I thought you could go that direction where you you could train yourself not to sleep as much. You can sort of. There are limits. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah, and the older you get, it seems the uh, the less you can get away with it for me. Right. What, it's what? because your body doesn't heal as fast. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> but how do you just how how would you describe? Well, would you just describe alternative methods for people that <laughs> obviously don't sleep? Like that are just, or it's just they have that brain thing in them that they can do that they can run like that for so long yeah i mean it's just it's there it, everybody's different i used to be a commercial fisherman so really if you've ever fished commercial you know that it's all about long hours and so you built up a callus for that so i had by at that point stayed up for 48 hours any number of times and so you it's just like running a marathon so if you run a, if you run long distances, there's a period where it is going to suck. Period. End of story. It just is. It's going to suck, and you have to be like, okay, here's that part where it sucks. I'm just going to ignore the fact that everything in my my existence is telling me to stop, and I'm going to keep going. And that's the way it is when you're trying to stay up forever, too. Yeah, it is. It's wild. That it's all. It's it's just a mental. Uh, do you do you, do you get some type of mental? Um, st- like challenge similar to that in cooking where you're just pushing like it's like a like like have you been in pain in some way it like working through cooking um there's two different things that that spring to mind one is just when you're working the line in a busy restaurant you're none of these kitchens are big yeah and so everybody's cheek by jowl and everybody's bumping each other and everything's hot or on fire and I used to work a, a wood-fired oven, and I had—I literally had no no hair on any of on my arms up past the elbow on either arm. And at the one point, um, my eyebrows got singed. So it's like, yeah, that sucks. <laughs> uh, I had a boss who put out cigarettes in my arm uh, until I told her to stop. What and is that? Wait a second. What does that mean? <laughs> We're just gonna skim over that. <laughs> Was that like what? What? What situation there? <laughs> Oh, this is the Ethiopian restaurant. So, it's it's she was the, my. So boss, this is while you're like 21 in Madison. While she was telling me to, how to do stuff, and it's, she she didn't really care if the end of her lit cigarette hit me, you know, hit my arm, and she's like, ah, and like, yeah, you know, I don't know, I listen. Like, <laughs> and she was right. Oh my god! Wow. But yeah, like that's that's a case of like you know. You don't know what you don't know, and I thought that was pretty normal in the restaurant industry. Turns out it wasn't that normal. Uh, <laughs> although, any cook worth his salt has had something thrown at him by the by the head chef. Yeah, what's the so what is the, break down the dynamics behind the kitchen wall? Like, what's going on back there? And I guess if we had a one to ten rating scale, and like ten is like the best, highest class restaurants, the most. Most well-ran business. What's like? When do you get to that stage where you have like multiple chefs, a kind of like a pecking order, and then what kind of restaurants have you, you been a part have of? A like pecking a... order. Okay. Always. So, 
so even at the little restaurants, the, the, the little, you know, Horn of Africa was a small restaurant. So typically it was the boss, and then I was the main cook. And then there would be one other cook who would show up every now and again. And I started as a dishwasher. And I got my job because the other assistant cook just decided to not show up. And that's pretty normal in the restaurant industry. Yeah. The, the vibe in any good kitchen, no matter where you are, is it's us against the world. And it's a team of misfit toys who can sometimes, when everything works right, create magic. And then every other time that it's not working exactly that way. It, have you ever seen the movie The Replacements? Yep. That's a great movie. It's a quicksand speech. So when everything works well, it's just beauty. And everybody's moving right, and everything's coming out right, and all the tickets are coming right, and the food is wonderful, and nobody's sitting in the back, and they're cleaning their plates. Well, if one part of that machine breaks down, your attempts to fix it can sometimes be like being in quicksand, where things get backed up, things start to come back, and you know the, 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 the faster and the harder you try to catch up, the worse it gets. And that makes everybody super pissed off and super bummed out and super aggro. And it just, it happens. It just happens. And you just get used to it over the, over the years. So, um, yeah, I, it's a, it's a team, team effort, obviously team, team situation. So what kind of restaurants have you worked in in the past? What's the, what's like the biggest, Restaurant? Are you still working in restaurants right now? No, I haven't worked in restaurants in a long time. Um, I basically traded one misfit job for another misfit job. It's uh, the I was a newspaper reporter for eighteen years, and uh, I did that political politically, right? And, yeah, exactly. And but it, and I found that it was essentially the same job. It's it's a job that has weird hours. That's you know populated by misfits who believe that what we do is a calling and not just a job. Like nobody, be, nobody gets, just a, gets a job as a journalist. Nobody gets a job as a chef because you can make way better money doing other things. You do it because you love to do it. And that commitment to the craft, because they're both crafts and not arts that, are, that, that require a lot of time to, to get good at. You know, it's not easy to do any number of things in cooking and it's not easy to do any number of things as a reporter. So I found that it was basically the same profession, and I worked really well in it, and I enjoyed it for a long time. Uh, do cooking kind of side hustles then? Was journalism your main main career at that point? Yeah, for a long time, journalism was my main career, and then I and I uh, fished and and gathered wild plants, and and then ultimately hunted um, as a way to keep sane because you know it's a pretty hectic job and. You know the the need for nature is pretty strong when, especially when you gotta wear a suit and tie and be in, a, in the capital every day. So what was uh, like what was your first cut in nature? Then that was it was it started with fishing, but then it, you found your way to the woods. Yeah, yeah. So I started with fishing and and you know picking wild plants and mushrooms and things. I've done that since I was a little boy. Um, I didn't start hunting until I was thirty, though. What was your first experience? Um, with that then, just with hunting, I yeah. was in Minnesota. 
actually, that's not entirely true. My first actual hunt, I was in uh, South Dakota, but I was living in Minnesota at the time. And we went on a, uh, a pheasant hunt in Aberdeen. And I had never really shot a shotgun before, so I couldn't hit the broad side of a barn. Uh, but my friend Chris could. And what was interesting about it is his ability to read land, to know you know exactly where to go and exactly how to approach a field and exactly what angles and all this kind of stuff was, was really fascinating because I knew that stuff on the water. Having been a not only a, a recreational but a commercial uh, fisherman for you know my whole life at the time, that I hadn't really put that stuff together on the land, and it was really interesting. And and not only that, uh, I since I knew how to cook, what we brought home was always amazing to, in the kitchen. Like you're talking about like topography wise, like what you brought in from the sea, you brought then you could you recognize then on land. Yeah. So what I mean is. Um, an angler's not just somebody with a rod and reel in his hand. You know, a real fisherman is someone who can read water and and understand structure and understand tides yeah. and seasons and, and how to present a bait and where to present a bait and all that sort of thing. It's just, it's a lot more than just hooking and, and reeling. Just the same way that hunting is a lot more than, than aiming and shooting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm always interested with with how much topography and, and structure, like you just said, along that goes with the strategy of fishing because we it's a lot of the same stuff that we talk about um, on here. We focus mainly on whitetails and, and turkey hunting, but um, I guess I haven't really spoke to a commercial fisherman. That, yeah, can, that's done can a we get like a, a a background on your commercial fishing? Sure, um, it's I've done everything from. I think some of my favorite stuff has been the real small-scale stuff. So at in New York, in uh, undergraduate school, I used to dig clams. And that's just you. You know, you're out on a john boat with uh, a big old, what they call a bull rig. It's a telescoping aluminum handle on an iron rake. And then the rake is recurved. So you lower the rake into the into the water where you think clams are, and then you the end of the handle is like a T and you, you know, you haul this iron recurved rake through the mud and the sand underneath the water and to try and, and you can hear them. You can hear the clams get into the, into the iron cause they clink. And then you lift this thing up out of the water. And before it goes, comes out of the water, you shake the bull rake to get all of the mud in or as much of the mud out, away as you can. And then you swing the contents of it into uh, a sorting tray. And then you sort out what you can keep, and then you you, le- you let go which can. And you do that over and over and over and over and over again in all kinds of weather. And you sort your clams into little necks and cherry stones and chowders. And you get a different price for each per bag. Sure. I did that for quite a while, and that was a lot of fun because you're, you're your own boss. Uh, I ran a few longliner trips for swordfish, uh, a little bit like the the um, Perfect Storm movie, if, if you've ever seen that. Yeah. Um, and then I ran on a, a, a purse seiner for squid a few times. Okay. And that's a purse seine is um, imagine a giant uh, mesh pouch, and there's a, a the main net is attached to the main boat, and then my job was to run a little outboard motor on a rowboat with the other side of the net around where we thought the squid would be. And then you run it around and then you come back to the, the, uh, that, um, mothership boat 
you reconnect the other side of the net and you pull it taut and, and then it's like a big old bag full of, full of squid. And then you haul that over on the deck and then you release the purse and it's like this squid avalanche um, <laughs> of, you know, 10,000 squid coming at you, wow. which is super fun. And, and, and you use a snow shovel to shovel them into the hole over ice. And then more recently, uh, I've been gill netting for salmon in Alaska. And a gill net is just a big long net. It's about a quarter mile long. And it's got a mesh of a certain size to catch a certain kind of fish. And the fish swim in it and they get their gills, uh, gill plates stuck in the mesh and they can't get out. And then you haul it and then you, that's been a really interesting fishery because that's a very high quality fishery where we take every single fish that comes overboard and we, um, we bleed them, we gut them, and then we, then we pressure bleed them, which is a special technique to get all of the blood out of the fish. And it creates a, an amazing quality fish that, that is better than you can even do recreationally. So are, are those going to those salmon going to restaurants as as whole fillets then or what what's the scoop there? Yeah, I mean we can we sell them direct to consumer. I mean you can buy them, um, and the, the company's called Taku River Reds T A K U. Okay. And it's uh, it's the same thing. If you ever heard of Copper River salmon, it's the exact same thing, okay. just from a different part of Alaska. Sure. Super high end because it's you know we're treating every fish individually and. It, the, the difference is so profound. Like if you were to eat sockeye from us versus sockeye from Costco, you would be surprised that they're even the same fish. Oh, I'm sure. What's the best way for someone to um, look up that? And are you are you shipping the salmon? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, yep. They ship direct. To, they. You can do two ways. You can ship direct to consumer, or um, if you if you live near an airport. Alaska services, which Milwaukee and Madison, I believe, are too. Um, then, then the the cheapest way is to do it air freight. So they'll send it to the airport, and you just drive to the airport, pick it up. Saves you like fifty bucks. Oh wow, that's pretty cool. And then what what website's that? It's uh, Taku River Reds, T A K U, and then River, and then Reds. Reds is. Reds is uh, Alaska slang for sockeye. So you're involved with like actual not, shipping no, of all the I mean, the I, I know everybody and I know how they do it, but uh, not day to day. Just have a, you're the commercial fisherman part of that. I, uh, I work with the owner on his boat. So then from fishing, somehow you got introduced to uh, actually hunting um, somewhat. So what's, what was your, besides pheasant, did you, did you kind of pick up your own hunting where you were hunting by yourself? I kind of did. Uh, the things that I wanted to do most when I first started when I was living in Minnesota were uh, rabbits and squirrels. And I still have a, a soft spot for rabbits and squirrels. Like, I love hunting both of them to this day. Okay, but which one do you I, prefer of the two? <laughs> which one do I prefer of the two? Yeah. To eat. Ooh, to it's eat, kinda to eat. Hard to beat, it's kind of hard to beat uh, either a snowshoe hare or a western, a western gray squirrel. Our gray squirrels that live out here in the West are about six to eight ounces heavier than your gray squirrels. Okay. So they're they're a big chunky squirrel and they're delicious. I think the only thing that a cottontail has above, say, a snowshoe or a squirrel, is that you can you can chicken fry a cottontail because they, they live fast and die hard. Yep. 
whereas squirrels can be three or four or five years old. So you can't, you know, everybody talks about fried squirrel, but it's kind of, it's kind of bull because unless you're, unless you, you're actively hunting kits, you know, young in the year squirrels, they're too tough to fry. I mean, they're, they're wonderful braised and I love them that way, but you have to park cook them and then fry them if you're, if you're going to not be chewing all night long. Yep. So your go-to, um, what would be your go-to recipe or style for both of those? I mean, I do love buttermilk fried rabbit. It's it's pretty amazing. Um, but that's strictly for cottontails. If it's uh, snowshoes or jackrabbits, uh, I'm going to slow braise them. You know, like uh, I do a, a dish that I've become fairly know, well-known for called Sardinian hare stew. Uh, that's just a fantastic thing for a snowshoe. Where you just—it's like basically it's a stew, and and you braise it out, and you pull the pull the bones out, and it's got you know a little bit of saffron, it's got a lot of capers and onions, and it's very simple. It's really—it's only got like seven ingredients in the whole thing. What's your like go-to? Say you have six squirrels in a bag, um, go-to squirrel mess cook-up. I mean, it's hard to beat Brunswick stew. I mean, it's a classic for a reason. Um, but I really—I I did a dish. Man, it's 11 years ago now, maybe more than that. It's a, it's a Spanish dish that's, that was originally done with rabbits, and uh, I started to do it with squirrels. It's called Squirrel Aurora, and, and the recipe's on the website. It's a slow-braised squirrel. It's not a stew, but it's braised, so they're nice and tender, and it's got um, olives and nuts in it and a little bit of chili, but not too much and white wine and it's just it's a really kind of it, it kind of fancies up squirrel in a way that you're like wow this is damn good like it's, it's like date night squirrel you know <laughs> which is not a sentence you hear every day someone shoves you out in the woods and says go give me two rabbits and three squirrels in one day what's your go-to strategies well so i'm gonna have to if i have to get both um in your area it's totally doable in, in many areas, it's just not doable Sorry. because you, they don't live in, in a situation. Yeah, in a situation, let's let's just think of it as a situation where you have both of them available for you. Well, I mean, one of the good ways to do it is um, if there's stuff on the ground, you're in business because uh, rabbits are a creature of habit, so they have their little rabbit highways here and there that you can you can follow them, and then quite often. If there's snow on the ground, and even if there's not, if you know what to look for, you can you can actually see the little trails in the in the uh, leaves sometimes. You'll figure out, oh, well, there's here's a big briar patch or a big blowdown of a whole bunch of trees and sticks and things. Chances are they're going to be underneath that. So if you're by yourself, one good way to approach those things is to is to have like rocks or sticks or logs or things. And you carry that with, you just kind of sneak up on the side of the patch where you think there's rabbits in it. And you kind of get ready. And you chuck a rock or a big stick or something right in the center of that patch. And chances are a rabbit's going to be going to bolt out of it. And you have a chance to shoot him right there. And if you miss, which is, you probably will, <laughs> you, can, you can remember that this, he will come back. Now, if it's not... 40 below zero kind of walk off to the side in this place so that you can see where he's probably going to come back to and if it's not on the ground you can see exactly which place he's going to come back to because you'll see that little rabbit highway and just wait just listen to the birds and then maybe you can shoot a squirrel while you're waiting because 
you can only really shoot squirrels when you're quiet. And eventually that rabbit will sneak back to that patch. It usually takes between a half an hour to an hour. And if you have the patience, you can, if you, if you busted like six rabbits that way, you can plink them as they come back. So that's one method to do it. Or you just, you know, dusk and dawn, the first half hour of shooting light and the last half hour of shooting light, just walk around real, real quiet and they'll be out, they'll be out eating and you can just plink them that way. Squirrels are a little different. Um, my favorite way to hunt squirrels is in a place that I have actually scouted before. They're like deer. You kind of want to know where they're probably going to be. So one way to do that is, is if you've got a woodlot that you can hunt, you look for mast trees, whether they're acorns or hickory or pig nuts or black walnut. That's what the squirrel's really, really going to key off of. So if you've got them in your area, you're in business. So the squirrel's always going to like to live in the, you know, the kind of the sleepy hollow looking tree, the one that has the ghosts in it, like this big old gnarled thing. And, you know, that's these, you can see them, you know, they like these big old trees, especially that's up in Wisconsin. And squirrel tunnels. Huh? Squirrel tunnels. They just disappear forever in them. Yeah. Yes, they do. Yeah. And see when it's when warmer spots with smaller trees will make drays, you know, those nests. Um, yeah. but when it's really cold out, they want to, they want a hole in a tree and it's these big old hole trees. So what I generally do is I'll find one or where I think there's one and you can always kind of tell because squirrels are really messy eaters. So you look at, you know, and where I live, it's all pine. So you look for where squirrels have been chewing on pine cones or for where you live, you look for the chewed up nuts and then you just kind of plunk yourself real comfortable with your back on a tree where do you think they might be? And then you just disappear. And at some point, the forest will forget you're even there. And then they'll come out. And then that's where you really want to use a 22. Because a shotgun is so loud, um, you can, it's, it's like a shockwave in the forest. So you'll get one, and then you have to wait another 15, 20, 30 minutes. With a 22, you can sometimes plink off half a limit in one volley because they're all out doing their thing. They seem to not care as much on a 22 that they do with a shotgun. Yeah, for sure. So what, is that how your first introduction to cooking um, land wild game came from squirrels, rabbits, like your first inter- introduction, pheasants? Not or so much my venison? first because my friend Chris had given me venison and duck and, and pheasants before I even started hunting. But yeah, the first stuff that I cooked that I had killed was that stuff. Was that how as a as a chef? How would you describe the like to someone who eats beef and pork? How would you describe how venison is different than those things? Venison is is very similar to grass fed beef. Um, The biggest difference between venison and anything like venison is that it's it's finer grained, it's denser, and it's leaner. So a pound of venison is going to be smaller in size than a pound of beef because beef is looser and coarser. You, you follow? Yep. Yeah. So, and there's no fat and there's fat on the outside, but the, the, I've only seen in all of my years hunting one white tailed doe that had even a semblance of marbling. So pretty much they, they don't really marble like beef does can you can any of you guys say that you've seen like a marble venison no yeah no, no. no. 
Uh, it's very rare. I mean, you have to be kind of like, you know, people of Walmart heavy to, to be, you know, have marbled marble deer, you know? City deer might have it. By the way, if you're not familiar with that website, you need to, you need to spend some time on it. It'll make you feel good about yourself. <laughs> Which website? People of Walmart. People oh, of people of Walmart. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, and it all goes back to what they eat, right? It does, it does. So how do you, I guess, because I feel like our, our deer around here and probably most white-tailed deer and not not as much mule deer, and mule deer definitely, ta- I think, tastes a lot different. Um, like, why do you, th- why are they so lean? Because they eat corn and beans, like, a lot quite a bit but they still i guess they forage a lot and probably 60 percent of their diet comes from non-corn and beans or even probably 80 percent but do you have you have you noticed a difference between you know midwest white-tailed deer that are feeding on cornfields and soybean fields versus say mule deer or elk that uh, well elk is completely different or blacktail blacktail black tail, yeah that are are out probably in a little bit more um non-conventional yeah, I mean, the, ranges. the biggest difference is that your your midwestern deer get bigger because their nutrition is better and they will typically have a, a, a thicker fat cap outside. So, I mean, it's not like they're not fat. It's just they hold fat differently. I mean, the, the, the difference is I, I, you know, no, no cow will be marbled if it's wandering around eating cow things. They only get their marbling when they're in feedlots. Yeah. Which what? I mean, you oh. can, you can, you could pasture a cow in, you can get marbling and, and grass-fed beef. It's not impossible. But you have to severely restrict the exercise they get. It's just that deer and elk and pronghorn and all of these things are they're athletes. Yeah. It's it's more by the movement then, yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what about gaming? Like, how do, you, how do you approach that conversation when somebody tells you something is gamey? Because I, I lose my mind and can't speak when people say that. <laughs> I, it's funny. I just wrote a big article about it. Um, so if you have show notes, um, definitely link to that, which will go into what I'm about to say in much further detail. Okay, we will. But there's really two different kinds of gaming meat. There's what you know, John Q. Public thinks is gaming meat, which isn't. And then there's actual gaming meat. So what drives most of us insane is, you know, you'll feed someone a perfectly cooked mallard or a perfectly cooked piece of venison or a perfectly cooked, you know, turkey thigh from a, from a wild bird. Like, oh, it's gamey. You know, cue, cue Pablo Escobar meme from Get Facebook. Get you know? out <laughs> of my fucking house. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's that's only like and the, and in my experience that's only if they know that it's what it is. Like if it, if you don't tell them what it is, they just say, "Oh, this is great." And then afterwards, you know, like, "Hey, you just ate deer or you just ate bear." Well, it it had a funny taste, I guess. No. Right. You know, that's you're not wrong. I mean, the 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 classic saying is that food has to think good as well as taste good. And okay. You know, I intellectually know that bobcat and lion are allegedly tasty because everybody who has eaten them has said, "Oh, this isn't bad." I don't, I don't eat dogs and cats, so I'm not going to shoot or kill or eat any dogs or cats of any kind. I mean, obviously, if they're coming at me, I would, but, but not, no, I'm not going to hunt them on purpose. So that's just me, right? So for me, 
bobcat or mountain lion, I won't eat it because it doesn't think good. And for, for them, they have it in their heads that venison or a duck or a wild turkey or a goose, oh, that can't be fit to eat. So my brain tells me it, it's, it's not good. Now that's when you don't tell them what it is, the brain doesn't, hasn't, hasn't clicked that switch. So they're, all they're doing by is what it really is. And, oh, wow, this is amazing. So I, I freely admit that if somebody snuck me Bobcat, I probably would think it's good. But I don't want to eat it. Do you think it has anything to do with, uh, um, like, our taste and our palates moving so far in that direction with, like, the way that majority of the meat that we like general public consumes is raised in just like such an outrageous like different way than what wild animals are experiencing like you know you're talking about like 100 correct like grass-fed beef rotational grade like beef that are actually moving are so far away from just like our palates and taste buds are so distant naturally from that wild palate i guess so how do i guess yeah how do you blame that so here's, here's what's going on. Everything you just identified is correct, which is why some people don't like grass-fed beef. It's funny, I had an amazing piece of grass-fed beef. It was marbled and beautiful and everything. The fat was a little yellow. Well, you know why the fat's yellow is because it's grass. Grass has carotenoids, which, you know, which deer fat has as well, which makes it A, more prone to going rancid, but B, it's full of omega-3 fatty acids, which are super good for you. It's the same it's the same fat that's in salmon that everybody wants to eat, but it's grass-fed beef gets it, and so did deer. So this was an amazing ribeye, and but just because the fat was a little yellow, a couple of people at the table were like, "Ew, what's wrong with that beef?" <laughs> so everybody's trained to have as the default meat taste profile, to put a sort of chefy jargon on it, is corn, corn, chicken-fed corn. Domestic turkeys are fed corn. Beef is finished on corn. Everything is finished on corn. I mean, shit, there are, there are, are, are lambs that are finished on corn. I mean, it used to be not too long ago where 90% of all the lamb in the United States was 100% grass-fed. And then Colorado started to, to pioneer Colorado lamb, which was feedlot lamb. It was finished on grains. So it got super fat, and it got that same taste profile. And that's since, since that's all you eat... And it mean hell if you eat farmed salmon, there's corn in their diet too. Well, so what so is everything is eating this corn? Because just because what? Hold on, hold on. Before we move on, percent corn. Why, it tastes different. Why do you? Why? So why is that? Just because it's so much cheaper to raise. Like corn is just cheap to people, or yep. Okay. Corn is cheap. Corn is. I mean, now you will see um, some things. Uh, finished on other grains, and that actually improves the flavor. But corn is the cheapest, most efficient uh, grain crop in the world. So, what's like a uh, kind of a weird grain that beef get finished on, or a different grain? Uh, barley. You see, you see barley a lot. Um, That'd be cool. You know, you can finish you can finish animals on anything. I mean, some of the greatest hogs in the world are finished on nuts. Heck yeah. Like the greatest pigs, the greatest pigs you ever want to eat are finished on are on walnuts or acorns. Hey, that you'll be happy you'll be happy to know that I just planted um we're planting 500 hazelnuts and chestnut trees just to finish 
with beef. In six years. Or sorry, in beef, beef and and uh, pigs, pork. Yeah. Oh, pigs. Yeah. <clears throat> Those are gonna be some awesome pigs. Yeah, six in probably eight years, but yeah. <laughs> now here's a here's a here's a side note though. So your pigs will be better for whole whole um, muscle charcuterie. So hams, um, you know, loins, that sort of thing. There's a, a drawback with not finished hogs that only is a drawback with sausage. So the really? fat of nut finished hogs is softer and less saturated than the fat off of grain finished hogs. So in sausage, and only sausage, the grain finished um, pigs are superior. Jeez, might have to do half and half then. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, of course you can, you could. I mean, and it, and it doesn't have to just be corn. It can be anything. It can be any kind of thing that's, and it can include nuts as well. It's just if it's if, you, if it's a hundred percent nuts, it's going to make the greatest ham ever. But the fat might be weepy and a little bit soft for say brats. Yeah, I have been looking into oats and barley. Oat, like a like a kind of a mix of oats and barley. Yeah, that's a great idea. I don't want to get too far into this. We technically brought you on here for wild game stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I, th- I think I think we kind of covered that. That that's a great point. I mean, people. I don't know. I actually haven't given f- venison to somebody recently that has been like weirded out by it. It's also on us to cook it well too. Like, there's a lot of people that cook yeah, it like a weirdo. I, mean, I was going to get to the other part of gamey too. There's the bad gamey, the real gamey. Yeah, and yep. there is real gamey. So there are some animals that are just strong. Like uh, I've had mule deer that have been strong. Um, Sharp-tailed grouse are strong. Ptarmigans are strong. Um, There are ducks that are strong but not gross, like uh, ringnecks. Ringnecks are strong-flavored, but I like them a lot. Then there are ducks that are strong and not so good, like spoonies or golden eyes, which, because of their diet again... Yeah, that's, I'd say that's pretty gamey. I mean, I might use a different word like fishy, but so there's that. And then there is field care. Uh, and so bad field care can really taint meat, and, and hormones can too. So if you shoot a, a ruddy buck, I guarantee you the meat quality is going to be inferior to that same animal if you shot it before the rut. You know what the problem is? <laughs> you don't eat a backstrap off a off a running buck. Like, okay, so if I if I if we were to kill a doe in September, that backstrap's going on right away. So to actually even compare the two is so difficult because like all I have left in my freezer right now is rutted buck backstraps. <laughs> There's a trick for it though. Okay. And how, how do you have the ability to dry age? Well, if you explain to me how to, I will, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you're in a climate where you can get away with it, too. So so dry aging red meat is, it, you've got, you need to keep things relatively humid. You know, not sopping wet, but, you know, not bone dry. And just above freezing. So basically refrigerator temperature. And you need air movement. So typically, if you're going to do this, you know, for real, uh, you get a walk-in with a fan in it. But, I mean, I don't have that ability. But uh, I have an do, excellent room in a barn that might fit it. that. Yeah, barn would be good. So you only dry age things that you want to cook medium or rare. 
So there is zero reason, it won't hurt it, but there's no reason that you have to dry age ribs or shoulders or shanks or neck because you're going to cook the crap out of that anyway. It doesn't matter if it's, if it's you know, tough. I call the, what you're describing is what I call high intensity cuts. Like when we're cooking this shit, we need to pay attention and it needs to be quick and it needs to be rare. Yes. Yes, exactly that. So, but that includes the hind legs because the hind legs, I mean, it's all in how you cook too. So I t- No, no. Oh, no. God damn it. Anyway, where did I cut out? You were talking about the legs. So the, you, you, were, you were talking okay. about how the back legs are, you, you, I think, are you talking well, about the we rump? Were, we were in the dry aging. Oh, yeah, the, the whole hind yeah, leg of the, the shank. Oh, yeah. yeah, the dry aging thing. So, and like where I described like the high intensity meat. Um, so you're describing the whole shank, like everything. No, 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 no. no. The whole hind leg except the shank. Okay, yeah, yeah. So like you pull out yeah, of, yeah. Uh, you, you're talking about like the, do you pull steaks out of that? Well, I pull roast out of it. So you pull what roast I do out is of it, I, yeah. um, I bone it like a leg of lamb, and then I separate every muscle from every other muscle eventually. Because what that does is that allows you to cook a big old you know, sirloin tip or, or yeah. rump roast where it's one muscle. So when, you, when it's only the one muscle, or maybe two, you know, the, the, the sirloin tip that looks like a football, that's actually several muscles. But the point is... If you do that, you have so much less connective tissue that you can serve it medium rare. Whereas if you cut across those muscles, you can you can no longer serve it medium rare because the the connective tissue won't melt. So you have to pot roast it. So it gets because then it gets tough. Oh, yes. it stays tough. It stays yes. tough. That see so, that is my issue. I was running into hey. that this year where I was like, I feel like I've used some of these cuts before, and I have cooked them like steaks. But they're they're just coming out tough, and I don't understand why. But I must have been doing that. What you just described there. Yep. Yeah. If you cut across connective tissue, it'll be you'll get like two tender bites, and then you'll get the connective tissue, and you'll get it. It's like dental floss. Yeah. Okay. So with dry aging, though, you would you would want to choose. Here's here's my my sort of ghetto version, ghetto Wisconsin version yeah. of in a barn dry aging that in like a dirty old <laughs> like. Rome in a barn. So, okay, yep. here's, here's your setup, right? So every God-fearing Wisconsinite has a beer fridge, correct? Two. Yeah, we got two. Two, we got usually. Two, actually. <laughs> See, well, okay, at least one. Like, one's the law and two is required. Is, is <laughs> yep, yep. If you're about okay, to, so if you're you're about to say to... Set up go a ahead. rack in your beer fridge okay. and, so that you have air circulation on, say, a whole hind leg. You can do this with a whole back strap, too, but a whole hind leg is easier. So let it sit there. You, I would put a drip pan underneath it so you don't have, like, ick dripping on your beer unless you don't care. Um, and the reason why this is ideal is because it's the right temperature and it's your beer fridge. Every single day, multiple times a day, you're opening that door to get a beer, providing air circulation for that meat. So you can leave that there for a month or more. And the outside is going to get pretty gnarly looking, but it'll be fine inside. And so the whole reason why you keep the hind leg whole like that is because there's trim. And you'll have to trim that rind off. And then I usually just give that to the dog or throw it away. And, and then underneath, you've got this beautifully crimson red, perfect, dry-aged venison that you can then 
butcher as normally. So and what's the difference between no special equipment? What's the difference between that and like just letting one hang in that? Like say in a so you know a lot of a lot of people are killing deer late October, November, even December. So we're gonna have cold temps. It's just the difference in temps. You cannot. You wouldn't want to just hang that in an outbuilding like that. You could if the temperature is fairly stable. What it doesn't like is it, under no circumstances. Like you don't want, want the freeze thaw. Above fifty. And you probably don't want it to freeze hard and then on thaw. That's also correct. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, typical dry aging of beef and and meats like beef is really cold. It's like thirty four to thirty six. So if you were 30 to 40 for somehow, yeah, that doesn't happen here. So I was saying, <laughs> you want a 10 degree difference only in for 30 days in this state? No. no. Right. See, I mean, you can now for short term aging, absolutely hang in the barn, but that's just like a couple of days or maybe a week. But if you're going to do actual dry aging, and so there, no, there's all these taste tests, and you can't, you don't get any benefit from dry aging until you hit three weeks. Three weeks. Okay. Wow. That's the minimum. And people, I mean, hell, I just ate, I just had some ribeye tacos with a ribeye with aged 52 days. My God, you put a ribeye in tacos? <laughs> I didn't. My buddy did. And, like, he's Mexican, so, you know, there you go. <laughs> All right, don't, don't you feel a little weird about that? No, because I made the tortillas that were just as good as that beef. It was, like, <sighs> the greatest taco on the planet. I probably is. And sometimes I'm like, it's just too good of meat to do something with like that with it, but... We probably should. Well, here's the thing. Like, you live in Wisconsin, right? So you lived in places where there was, you know, chingles Mexicanos. Um, like, the taco can be every bit as luxurious and as, as gourmet as yeah. anything else. It's yeah. like, how good's the tortilla? How good's the salsa? How good's the meat? You know, how good's the beans? Like, when everything is, like, so elevated by somebody really knows what they're doing, and you eat the – and the thing about a taco is it's, like, three or four bites. Yeah. And like, oh my God, this is amazing! Oh, it's gone. <laughs> what, I'm, I'm going. I'm going to be honest with you. I have some family in Reading, and we were out there for a wedding, and there, the catering for the wedding was a uh, a burrito truck, and it was the best burritos and tacos I've ever had in my life. Right. There is one of the finest restaurants on earth in Mexico City. That in the middle of this fancy pinky in the air tasting menu, there's some tacos. And they're just the best thing in the world. Yeah, and they're like, you know, they're like, I'm going to heaven tacos. What's your What's your ultimate venison taco include with toppings and everything? How do you, How do you do? That's it? a good one. I actually really like Sonora style. So it's a handmade flour tortilla. Now, if, you, if I'm going to pull out all the stops, it's going to be a handmade flour tortilla with Sonoran wheat. It's soft wheat, so it's a little different from the northern wheats, and it, it, it makes a difference in the tortilla. So a soft wheat, Sonoran tortilla, when they have fat in them, right? So you can use oil if, you, if you're boring and stupid, but you <laughs> should use fresh rendered lard. Ooh, and if you nice. really want to do it right, you use smoked lard, like bacon fat to cut for the, in that tortilla. So there's your, your tortilla is already amazing, right? So that's the base. Then you're going to do, I'm not, uh, you know what I'm going to do, is it a white tail or is it any deer? Any deer. No. Okay. No. Yeah, any deer. 
Okay, fine. <laughs> well, right, where are you at? Where are you cooking this at? Where you 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 you? It's describe, his deal. It's yeah, his you, deal. Des- you describe the location, and then I'll tell you which deer. <laughs> like, where are you cooking this? Well, at? okay. Well, all right. I'll, I'll actually have native. It's a coos deer. Okay. Because, so then right. there's your there's your uh, your. Uh, it's not only it's a white tail, but it's an, its diet is so utterly different. Yeah. That uh, they don't even taste like white tails. Yeah, they they're they're like sage feeders, right? No. No, their their diet is uh, primarily cactus. Really. And they're sweet. They are the only deer I have ever eaten anywhere between Mexico and Canada where the fat does not get waxy. Really? What? Really. Doesn't just wreck your top of your mouth. Okay. Just, just sit on top of your mouth for yeah. three days. That's it. I'm going to Arizona this spring. Next January. <laughs> January. Seriously. Yeah, no, I'm sold. I'm going. So I'm going to build a mesquite fire. A, a real mesquite fire. Okay. You are pulling out all and the stops. I'm, <laughs> and I'm gonna, I'm gonna grill. I'm not even gonna, do, I'm not even gonna marinate this. I'm probably gonna take. If the deer is big enough, I'm gonna use flank steak. You know, off the side of the, uh, over the ribs. Yep. If, if it's, it's got a lot of flavor and it's really good in tacos. If it's big, I'm gonna use the skirt steak, which is the inside of the ribs. Now, in most deer, it's too small. Mostly, I, I do this with elk and things. Okay. Backstrap is also good. Tenderloin is okay, but it's, it doesn't have enough flavor to be in my magic taco. So let's just say it's flank steak, because you can always get a flank steak off a whitetail. And I'm going, to, I'm going to salt it probably that morning and let it sit in the fridge all day long. Then I'm going to get this mesquite fire super, super hot. And then I'm going to coat that piece of meat. I'm going to dry it off because it's going to be wet because of the salt. I'm going to dry it off. And I'm going to coat it with some of that smoked, melted bacon fat. And then I'm going to slap it right on the grill at 600 degrees so it's done in maybe a minute and a half on each side. Still nice and rare in the center. How thick? And I'm going to... Uh, usually flank steak's going to be about a finger thick. Okay, yep, yep, yep. So it's pretty thin. And then I'm going to slice it across the grain and then chop it one more time. Then I'm going to put that as the meat. And then, God, which salsa? salsa so you're saying really you're gonna slice things. it? Like, so like, it depends on what my mood is. So like a, a flank steak is is longer, like like pretty much a lot of like surface area. So you're gonna strip mm-hmm. it and then cut it again, like in short yeah, little strips. Yeah, yeah. You have to cut it across the grain for it to be tender, but then you get strips, right? Yeah. And yeah. anybody who's eaten meat in a taco has has had a bite with like, oh, this meat's great, but your teeth just pulled out piece of meat out of the top out of the tortilla mm-hmm. that's no fun so that's why i have to chop it in a second time yeah okay um so that's your meat that's your tortilla um are right, you were saying it's salsa gonna have to, it's gonna have to have definitely it's gonna have to have a, a guacamole in it it's definitely gonna have to have um or you know it doesn't have to have guacamole it has to have a, a, just a piece of, of uh, avocado at least it, yeah well i wine, agree with that cilantro yes you know what it's probably just fine with with chopped up onions that have been soaking in lime juice and salt. Jesus, that sounds pretty damn good. I got five right? pounds of backstrap. Can be out there in twenty six hours. <laughs> <laughs> it's warm enough to grill here too. It's it's uh, fifty five, sixty degrees here. Oh. 
Hey, we had a balmy 14 today, and it actually felt really warm. It went, felt so good. Went snowshoeing for two hours. Yeah, I was like, this is the best thing ever. I totally remember those days where it's been below zero for five or six or eight days, and then you get the day that's like 20, and everybody's in shorts. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we we might hit above freezing next week, and it's going to be the weirdest thing oh, ever. Oh, 40's going to feel like it just a, it's going to be an apocalypse. It is. It would be nuts. <laughs> that also, that used to happen in Madison when I was there. Be Outdoor like, parties. Shit. Outdoor parties. that day in February, and it's like 40, and everybody's in a T-shirt and shorts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, happens every year. I actually have a funny story about, uh, to spin off of your nickel beer thing, there's a bar not far from here that uh, the first day that it hits 70 every year, they sell quarter beers for two hours. And uh, I was born in 1990, so I didn't get to throw many, many, uh, you know, change chunks on the on the bar and get a beer for it. So I was pretty obsessed with that for a couple. Are they years. still doing that? Well, the last I knew, yeah. Because that would be a yeah. Like you a, just you just you'd feel good about just yourself. Spike just a quarter spike on the bar and, and then bar, you get yeah. a beer. It's the craziest thing in the world. Oh yeah, like well, in that Chris Chris Farley story, he's like beers for everybody, and everybody got a good laugh out of that because it's like twenty bucks. I kind of have an inner guilt building up i feel like i don't use the skirt skate steak enough in a steak no format. you need to it's yeah so it gets good, ground especially up. grilled it is a little bit of a pain in the ass because you so have because it's so there's like a, so much fat kind of thick, but you can peel it off in these big chunks and then you just got to have a really good like i use an outdoor edge uh and no they're not paying me to tell to say that uh, they're paying us. i use an outdoor edge but a havilon or any really good sharp knife because you what you got to do is you got to take the silver skin off uh, and it's got to be that yeah. one layer of meat. So yeah. it, it's a little persnickety, but it's so worth it when you get it on the grill. So so the skirt steak is over the ribs, mm-hmm. yeah. and then the flank yeah, steak the is in between? Yeah, the inside. On most deer, it's too small. What is the muscle in between the rib cage and, like, the lower leg or the hind quarter? Uh, the one that hangs in the middle, that's the yeah. hanger steak. The hanger steak. Well, well <laughs> yeah, like yeah. on, like, an elk, it's big enough to keep. Yeah. I was thinking like the stomach muscles, or like the stomach. Yep, yep, that's the hanger steak. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean it's just too small in a deer. I mean, I mean it's edible for sure, but you know you can't get a real steak out of it until you get to like elk size. I got one out of my nail guy this year. Well, and I feel like some a lot of times because we process a lot of deer at you know say a day you process like ten deer, you end up tossing shit into a burger pile that you should not toss into a burger pile. And I think yep. that's what I feel guilty about the flank steak or the skirt. What flank, right? Yeah, flank. About, yeah. Yeah. Flank. I feel guilty because I, I feel like I've cut that off and I've just tossed because there's so much fat. Like there's just so much other stuff you have to trim around. But I'm I will never do that again, Hank. No, no, no. I'm not saying that. I'm saying like, you know, your ideal case would be, um, you know, it's, it's just like plucking geese. You know, I pluck geese a lot, but if I shot 10 Canada geese, there's no way in hell I'm plucking 10 Canada geese. I might pluck two of them. So be choosy. Like, pick a couple, then take the skirts off, and then grind the rest. Do you have a perfect deer, like deer? Do you have a perfect, like a like a two-year-old doe? Do you know? Have you ever gone that far to figure out, like, the best meat? It's, it's super variable. So you've got the species, and then all the different species have slightly different flavors. You've got a size issue. Do you want a big one or a little one? I mean, there's advantages to both. You know, some of the greatest venison I ever ate was an 11-year-old moose that was dry-aged for 40 days or something like that. It was amazing. 
you know, so it's, it's a hard question to answer because I can go any number of ways with it. Comes back to what they're eating probably. And well, taking yes, care of it. But also, um, yeah, and how you handle dry it. aged an older animal, it will be more complex in flavor than a young animal. Well, that is interesting. So you're saying it almost, that would be your argument to someone who complains, because there's a lot of people that have this thing saying, don't, like, old bucks meat sucks. Like old the, bucks meat sucks is the way that most people are handling it. Yeah. The way to handle an old buck is to dry age it for three weeks or more. And again, you don't have to do all the whole deer, but here's a trick too. Like most of you guys have saws. So if you're going to say, okay, this is a, a big old wall hanger buck, right? Hey, Hank, hey, so when hell I'm yeah, I've got <laughs> big man, hey, men, saws, yeah, I've got some of them, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> big saw guy, like, yep. I mean, at the very least, you got bolt cutters. Uh, <laughs> he probably actually doesn't have bolt cutters, but he's got some saws. <laughs> so if I got a big old wall hanger buck, right? And I say, okay, so this backstrap's going to suck as is. I'm going to leave it on the animal and I'm going to butcher the animal in such a way I am going to take the tenderloins off by the way. So the tenderloins are gone. So I'm going to take that whole length of backstrap and leave it on the bone and I'm going to butcher that way. So I'm going to saw the end of the backstrap off the hips and I'm going to saw the ribs off and then I'm going to saw the end of the backstrap up near the neck. I'm going to get this big long thing. I might cut it in half because it's just, you know, a big buck that can be you know, three feet long. Um, and then I'm going to age it on the bone. So this, it's super important if you're going to do that. It's super important to keep it on the bone. Why? Because the part of the backstrap that is attached to the bone, you will not have to trim when the time comes. So you can then dry age those big pieces of backstrap for three weeks, four weeks, or however long, and then ultimately when they get gnarly and weird and you're like, okay, it's time. When you comes time to trim, you're only trimming the outside. The, the edges sure. that are touching bone will be pink and wonderful. So you lose less and you will, you will, you will thank me later. Yeah. That's like, genius. Yeah, no, that's that, genius. Makes, that makes total sense. And I've, I kind of come to that conclusion, but it's, it's a weird thing like mentally to just see meat sitting there and be like, ah, oh, it's getting weird. Like, it's a weird thing mentally. It's like the Philadelphia 76ers. Trust the process. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever, uh, what do you think about, like, wet aging or other methods of aging besides dry aging? Is that something that helps? They're fine, but they're not as as wonderful. Like, I I do an equivalent of wet aging whenever I'm not dry aging in the sense that, you know, with pretty much all meats. So, let's say I shot a bunch of ducks, right? So... I'm going to pick the ducks and ducks will be plucked and I'll keep them in the refrigerator for a week before I put, before I freeze them. Same deal with any deer I shoot. So a deer is never going to see the inside of a freezer until it's at least a week old in the fridge. And that's basically wet aging. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I did not know that actually. God damn. Smart guy. What well, is, here's another one for you. Yeah, so well, yeah, just, just keep just keep deer. throwing a bunch of weird things that people don't don't normally think about. Tough backstraps, right? So tough backstrap syndrome <clears throat> occurs when you butcher a deer that is still in rigor mortis. Mm-hmm. 
Now, not everybody does this, but enough people do where it's an issue. So if your gear is all stiff, you know, still got the X's on his eyes, uh, you know, just leave him alone. <laughs> like, let him, let him hang or sit in your, you know, in a cool spot until they loosen up and then butcher it. Now, you can cut them in quarters. The problem, the problem is, is we're, most, sometimes most they'll take their back straps right off in the deer yeah. rigor mortis. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that causes a thing called shortening. So the, the muscle contracts off the bone because it's still in rigor and will always be tough. God damn. <laughs> the problem is sometimes they freeze and you don't know the difference. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have the opposite problem. Our deer season starts when it's 100 degrees out. Jeez. Yeah, so you're how? Uh, what do you, what's your strategy for deer hunting out there? Uh, big giant marine coolers. You quarter them and you throw them in marine coolers over ice. And our deer aren't real big. Like a, a pretty big buck is 160 pounds. All right. So we have some quick kind of bullet questions for you. Don't want to keep you too long. I think. Sure. Do you guys have anything uh, like deer venison related questions? They can think of. I don't. I mean, I have probably a million, but right. No. <clears throat> All right. So these are these are questions from the the people, other people here. So cast iron or grill for steak, loin, and burgers. Topic. Not where no, cast iron or grill <laughs> for steak, loin, and burgers. Smash burgers in a cast iron. Regular burgers on a grill. Uh, for loin, I'm probably going to most often use cast iron, or in my case, carbon steel. Um, but grill is just as fine. Like, I think it's just, for me, there's no... The only place where grill beats um, indoor cooking is smoke. So, like, if you have an electric grill, the only reason to have an electric grill is convenience and and... You know, if it's hot outside, like the the, the the cooking benefit requires smoke to for for it to be better than an indoor because you, you have so much more precision indoors. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel like I have a hard time really controlling stuff on a normal. We're talking about and that's like a, a problem normal, for you. <clears throat> we're, we're we're talking about a normal outdoors, just like charcoal grill. Mm-hmm. No, I mean you can produce amazing foods on that. You just you kind of have to pay attention. Big time. Well, Jed, you're a big you're a big charcoal grill guy. Yeah. What is your? Do you have any questions for him? Not off the top of my head, no. <laughs> Weirdo. <laughs> um. All right. So, next question: Tips for enjoying better liver or awful in it in general? Which I don't even know. If, yeah. If you can come up with something here. <laughs> Oh, I got no problem with that one. Um, so you guys go to do deer camps, yeah? Yeah. Like where there's multiple deer shot? Yeah, hopefully. Um, so you're the, the, other than the heart, which is, uh, pretty much most people, I don't even know that I need to talk about heart because pretty much everybody eats it, right? Well, yeah. I would like to say yes, but there are still a lot of people that I know that I get their hearts because they're like, oh, I don't need that. I, which uh, I take okay. gladly. To be honest, unfortunately, I just started eating them two, the last two years. And I hate myself okay. for it every day. So, heart is, heart's kind of, I, I would say the heart and tongue are the gateway drugs of uh, the, what I call the fifth quarter. Um, 
So hard is just meat. It's just, that's all it is. It's dense meat. And I would say I have two really good recipes for it. I've got more than that, but two that are easy and accessible. One is uh, a Peruvian, it's basically marinated hearts on skewers that is grilled over a hot fire. It's Peruvian, and that's, that's amazing. And then the other one is this grilled heart that's chopped up like, uh, you know, like, like for taco meat. You know, the thing about a heart is it needs two things. It needs to be cooked medium or medium rare because fully, I mean, I guess you could cook the crap out of it for hours and hours and hours, but it would still be weird because it's so dense. I really only enjoy it medium rare or rare. And it, it's still going to be tough because it was beating during this animal's entire life. So you either pound sheets of heart meat into cutlets, which is what I do a lot, or, or and even sometimes, you know what a jacquard is? That, that crazy thing with all the little blades on it that you pound meat with? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that works really well with heart. So it's... You, you, you get your cutlets and you go with that with that blade. It's called a jacquard, you know, and that helps a lot in terms of tenderness. So that's hot and fast, don't overcook heart. That's that. Tongues. Deer tongues are arguably the, the single greatest taco item ever. So uh, they're only like a single serving per, which is why I asked you about deer camp, because you need to do the Colombian necktie and pretty much all your deer for this. Um by the way, what I mean by that, if you're not familiar, is you take the tongue out through the bottom of the jaw. I I was familiar with it. I heard it one time <laughs> like five years ago and had to look it up. And then I was a little bit disturbed. And then I was like, okay, this seems actually like a real efficient way to get the, the tongue out. So how do you describe how <laughs> yeah, you're doing? Really next time, you're probably, you're probably not safe for work to Google. But uh, it's not, it's, it was pretty a violent thing that they did in the drug wars. But my point is, uh, you can either corn them or crock pot them or just slow braise them however you want, because you got to peel that skin off, and, and it takes a couple hours for it to get tender enough to peel that skin off. And then you you chop it, and you can do one of two things: you can either put it uh, cut it into large pieces and grill it over a fire, which is amazing, and then chop it into tacos, or you can chop it up so that, let's bottom line, nobody wants to look at a tongue. It's gross. But the meat itself is delicious. So you have to chop it up. And it, it wants to be braised till tender and then charred or seared. So however you, however you serve it that way, it's, it's, there's zero people who will not like it. Gotcha. What so, about... Uh... Liver. Liver, yes. I have an issue with deer livers. I don't like them. Um, Same. Neither I, does Taylor. I, if I shoot a young deer, I will keep it. An old deer, it stays in the gut pile. That is a personal preference. I got. I do have some issues with it. I think it's the most disgusting thing ever. Honestly, I've tried it multiple times and just never liked it. Just, it just tastes like sand it doesn't taste like sand. It has the texture of like a fine sand and it just, uh, I, I don't know. I just have never made it to my liking. I think there's a thing. If you go like where your mouths meet the corner of your cheeks and then you just go like inside your mouth and then back, like, I don't know, like an inch, something gets caught like right there. It's disgusting. <laughs> I call it chalky. Yeah, that's a good, good descriptor. 
Yeah, it's like chalky. Now, that said, it, you know, if you shoot a young deer, and I, for, number one, I soak when soak deer livers every single time. There's no way I'm not soaking the deer liver. You know, brine overnight and then milk over for the second night, and then it's fit to eat. And even then, I'm probably going to make, like, Cajun dirty rice where you use, like, a, you know, a quarter of one liver and, and chop it up super fine and mix it with Cajun dirty rice. That's good. You can add it sparingly to your sausage mix, and that's good. Um, but a, a big old slab of liver, mm, I'm okay with it with birds, but not with deer. What's your bird recipe for a liver, then? Depends on the liver. Um like and a really a small liver? In, uh, liver pate. Yeah, okay. Um, let me a really good liver pate. And, but I'm always on the lookout for, for livers that are kind of tan because those are fatty livers. That means the bird has been storing fat in its liver. And those livers are delicious. Those you just sear very hard and fast, real quick, with a little balsamic vinegar. You'll All see right. it in ducks a lot. Speaking of birds, we have a little scenario here for you. Turkey hunting in the spring, fully foraged meal, what are you making? And I hope you turkey hunt. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, the difference is like, kind of where are you? Um, well, morels are the classic. So morel mushrooms are pretty much always around during turkey season. So that's a gimme. Um, you're also probably going to see uh, spring nettles. So nettles will be, you know, young and, and ready uh, for, for turkey season. And so that is, that's a, you can do all kinds of things with that. Let's see, what else would be around in this? You know, you'd, you'd have also pheasant back mushrooms would be around at the same time. Um, wild asparagus is often around at the same time. Um, do you have a strategy for finding wild asparagus? Yes. Um, it is to look in June and July. When it's all ferned out and it has the, the little red berries on it. Because it's super obvious. Oh, yes. Yeah, you know, it, that makes sense. Because the, the asparagus will be the most obvious when it's, it's a giant thing of ferns with the real, little red berries on it. And those berries are not edible, by the way. Is there, do you do you think that there, is there like a certain location that it thrives in? Like ditches, yeah, fence lines? Yeah, it likes disturbed areas and it likes moist areas. <laughs> Damn, I don't. Yeah, that'd be something. That'd be an amazing thing to come along foraging for. My God, it's around. I I know guys. Here, I, here's the thing. Um, here's a little pro tip for you. So type in. Well, first of all, type in asparagus and find its Latin name. I can't remember it exactly. It's like Astrologus officinalis, if I remember right. But type in its official Latin name, and then the word, and then the letters USDA. So what that's going to bring up in, in Google is the USDA plant profile for asparagus. And, and when, you, when you click that, it's, you're going to see a map in the United States. And the green states have asparagus. Wisconsin's one of them. So then you click on the, the Wisconsin map, and then it will zoom in to say which counties asparagus has been found in in Wisconsin. Now, beyond that, I can't help you, but it'll get you close. <laughs> hey, beyond this map? It's in this county, Taylor. Wait, wait. No, it's... Is it supposed to be highlighted blue? It's... No, he said green. Oh. I think it's... Well, it's a, the blue means it's non-native, so... Oh. This is showing it's not on there, but... 
in our county. It's no, it's here. But it's yeah. Jed is confirming that it's here. All right, it is here. It's here. That's all. Yeah, that's all go. we'll say. So, so besides, you guys, because you guys live in Wisconsin, you have the advantage of having arguably the nation's greatest forager in Wisconsin. There's a guy named Sam Thayer. And as much as I like to think of myself as the best forager in the country, he's better than me. <laughs> nice. So he's written three books, and you should buy every one of them. That's a guy named Sam Thayer. And he lives up in the trees, I think up uh, by Hudson. Yeah. I have one of his books, but I don't have the other two. But. So that would you say you're more passionate about foraging than uh, hunting? No. No, I love I love foraging, but I think probably the thing that gets me real frothy is fishing, saltwater fishing. Like it's because it's I've been doing that since I was four, maybe even earlier. I don't know. I just don't remember before then. Like I just got off the phone earlier this afternoon. Uh, I'm planning on a, a a trip to the Gulf of Mexico to fish for swordfish, and I, I, I I'm already jumping out of my seat. <laughs> like I can't wait. You, yeah, that's gonna be pretty cool. Yeah, that'd be awesome. What's what's yeah, like? Fished, so what's like? Is, so how do you in probably forty four states <clears throat> and five Canadian provinces, and and one in Mexico. Yeah, I said I didn't want to get political or anything, but how <laughs> do you deal with like the like you live in California, uh-huh. but you wrote a game or you wrote a book on wild game cooking. Is there do you mm-hmm. do you run into like that issue a lot where people are like, how do you kill these animals? Oh, not at all. So here's what you have to remember about California. is California is, A, it's 1,000 miles long. B, there's almost 40 million people in California. So one of my one of the things I like to say is I, a lot of times I'll get, I'll get static from somebody. Like, this happened to me in Wyoming. So I'm like, ah, you liberal California, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, look, buddy, there are more Republicans <laughs> in my county than are in all of Wyoming. And we're not even a Republican county. I, well, yeah, I did see, I did, yeah, the, the aggressive, uh, you guys can get, the Republicans get signatures in that state, it seems like. Oh, yeah. I mean, so I guess the bottom line is that I don't live in Los Angeles, and I don't live in Bay Area, which is where you would see a lot of that all the time, where I would have to kind of tiptoe around it. Where I live, everybody duck hunts, and everybody fishes. Would you say that, would you say so people are more sensitive about fishing? Like fish, like certain mm-hmm. fish, uh, like certain fish, like sharks, whale, like you, people get more sensitive about that, that you speak oh, 100%. with. Yeah. Like, so there's, there's a great shark fishery in the San Francisco Bay and there's a, a fish called a leopard shark. And then there's another one called a seven gill and they're both, you know, species of least concern. They're not endangered. Mm-hmm. The limits are pretty tight on them. You know, it's like one seven gill a day and then three, uh, 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 leopard sharks and it, it's a well-regulated fishery and then every time you know god help me if i put up a picture of it on social media like oh my god you're killing the last shark i'm like <sighs> get education you know social media beautiful place speaking of fish you have some uh somebody that is here right now is going sturgeon fishing sturgeon spearing, spearing. next week oh yeah what is what would be your recommended how would you cook surgeon and what, what's your first thought on it? My first thought is you got to smoke some of it. Like smoke surgeon's amazing. I, I have so heard that's this. Num- 
I wouldn't smoke all of it. Well, let's remember, too, he has like a 1% chance of killing one. No, this is going to be the best weekend <laughs> in the history. <laughs> no, seriously, this weekend well, he is... is the luckiest human alive when it comes to hunting, so I wouldn't be surprised. This weekend is shaping up to be one of the best sturgeon spearing weekends in recent memory. It's the clearest, it? clearest water in the last, like, 15 years, and uh, it's a good warm-up. Good warm-up from some, some deep cold. So, and it's still open? Right now, it's not even at 50% yet. I'm a little nervous that the uh, the quota is going to get hit before Saturday. Yeah. So what what would you say well, if, you, if, if he one, does? Like, if you get one, I mean, so we're allowed three a year in California. Um, so, and I typically only catch maybe not even, I don't, I don't even average one keeper a year, but I don't fish them all that many times a year. But when I get one... Um, God, there's so much you can do with the sturgeon. So it's even cool, like, the because the skin is so thick and heavy, there's a thing that you can make, and I have the recipe on the website, called fish skin chicharrones. So basically it's like crispy, puffy. You know what, I love? You know what pork rind is, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. You can make pork rinds with sturgeon skin. Really? They're amazing well, balls. Sense. And they're not remotely fishy. But they're keto too, or gluten free. Yeah, they're 100 percent keto and gluten free. <laughs> free range too. <laughs> yeah. Organic, obviously. Well. Absolutely catches all the bases, except for the whole vegan thing. <laughs> <laughs> so what? What? What has been your? Th- do you have any questions? What have you? What have you thought you're gonna? Like I don't. So you can catch three sturgeon in California a year. Mhm. I didn't even realize you had. I thought we had sturgeon. We do have sturgeon. I know, but they I thought also that was, do. I thought that was it. <clears throat> well, they have a different kind of. No, sturgeon. you can catch them in Minnesota too. You can catch one up. Uh, well, I, I yeah, I know. From up by Budette one time. Yeah, I know. Great, li- any great lake or certain great lakes, I think have them. Um, but I think it. What is it? What is the odds? Like one percent? No, it's like a six percent success rate on. Oh, six percent. That's yeah. not bad. No. You said it'd be like a top. Yeah, we catch sturgeon every time we fish, but we don't. But it's a slot limit, so. Catching a, a keeper is, is a bit harder to do than um, what, what is, catching any sturgeon. What is the slot? 40 to 60 inches. So do you catch probably more unders than overs or no? Depends on the day. Sometimes it's just all the overs. Sure. The worst fish in the world is a 61-inch fish. Right. <laughs> it's the worst fish in the world. It's How- like, oh, no! Oh, how long how long is the battle with a with a one inch over it depends on the, on the depth of the water but i mean it can be 40 minutes right yeah I've, i thought I've he seen was some... referring to what's the battle of you just pretending that that inch didn't exist no 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 <laughs> no you're you know, not getting away with it as hunter angler poacher cook you know <laughs> <laughs> One thing I have noticed in your recipe books is that you uh, you have a flair for the uh, the comedic. Uh, I'm like my favorite part. My favorite part of Buck Buck Moose is that uh, the pierogi recipe serves uh, two gluttons or four to six normal people. <laughs> yeah, it's because Holly and I ate that whole recipe at one sitting. Dude, I believe you, dude. Pierogies are like. I don't know, one of the best things I've ever had in my life. 
Any dumpling. Like, I mean, yeah. if, there's a, if you meet any, well, first of all, if you meet someone who doesn't like dumplings in general, I don't know, they just throw them under the ice or something or take them, right. know, take them outside. I mean, it's just, you don't want to know that person. Right, and then throw and, cheese and then, in? Come on. Yeah, I mean, for the rest of us, like, who hasn't had control issues with dumplings? Whether it's tortellini or pierogies or, or got it, or, you know, empanadas or, or pasties. I mean, well, pasties at least are big. So, I mean, at some point you get... Well, no, no, it doesn't matter. I I feel disgusting after every time I eat any of them. Oh, especially the fried ones. Yeah, because like I go from like just shoving them into my face at a disgusting rate until <laughs> and right into oh my god, I'm going to puke. I am disgusting. <laughs> yeah, but there's nothing like the good beer will wash it down. Or for you guys, Corbell brandy. No, no yeah, beer. <laughs> Yeah, we just we were tossing Corbell in a recipe. Wisconsin is still the number one um, consumer of Corbell brandy in the world. That's wild to me. Yeah, I can't say I really drink it ever. I I, I have it only to be uh, an ingredient in recipes. I wonder if it's a generational thing. Well, I no, know yeah, it's not. No, did. it's not because I know plenty of people my age that drink them religiously, but, but like. Oh, okay. You know well, people the, who drink brandy? Well, yeah. it's the brandy old-fashioned. Yeah. I mean, oh, brandy old-fashioned. When, yeah. when we cooked with it a couple weeks ago, you took a sip of it, and you liked it. I didn't realize how sweet it was. I never really drank it before. It is. It's good, though. What was the recipe kind of we put in? I think has taken over its place. Uh, might have been Steak Diane. What's your go-to uh, booze since you you brought it up? <laughs> I don't have one. They're all my children. <laughs> <laughs> Just what? So, yeah. It, I I think Abe said that you're real big with wine. Are you Are you cooking with it, or are you just Are you just uh, like accenting a meal? Oh, you make. I've it. got I got I got grapevines in my backyard. So how do you treat it with a meal? Do you Do you cook with it much, or do you just accent a meal by drinking it? Or both, obviously. Both. both, yeah. Both. I mean, I drink everything from wine to cheap beer to mezcal to, you know, brandy to bourbon. Like, it's if it's good, I'll drink it. And if it's bad, I'll probably still drink it. <laughs> do you have, like, a certain meat or how do you how do you pair wine, beer, whiskey? Wine, beer, hard liquor. How do you pair that with a meal? So I don't pair hard liquor with food really ever. It, yeah. I find it's not a very good pairing. I, you drink hard liquor either before or after. Yeah, um, makes sense. But for beer and wine, which go much better with food, um, it kind of depends. If you if if what you're serving is really acidic, like with vinegar acidic, wine's not a good choice. And similarly, if if whatever you're serving is very uh, spicy, like hot spicy, um, wine is not a good choice. So that goes with beers. IPAs and spicy food are a match made in heaven. Um, the only wines that go well with spicy food would be like um, a Gewurztraminer or an off-dry Riesling. So you, you, there needs to be a little sweet in the wine if you're going to – not a lot, but I mean at least a little bit of sweet in the wine if you're going to eat it with spicy food. But you know, like venison and duck, man, you know, the just a, just a good solid bread. You know, whatever, whatever floats your ship will float your boat. What is your favorite red for Me? for cooking anyway? Uh, well, probably my. I mean, if money's no object, it's gonna be an Italian Barolo. 
which is an extremely expensive, really old red wine that like they don't even really sell it until it's like ten years old. Huh. Uh, so so not the five dollar Pinot Noir. It's kind of amazing wine, but like you know, if money is an object, I'm gonna go with a kind of a Pinot Noir for duck, and I'm gonna go for um, either a Cote d'Aron or a, or a uh, Italian red for for venison. Gotcha. All right. We have a couple, two more questions. Kept you, we appreciate your time. Uh, like, really appreciate okay. it. Um, have you heard of Sausage? Not by that name. So, it's it's obviously Italian. Right. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's pork and venison. It's got uh, cinnamon, cloves, and garlic are the main staples. And it's uh, just dried. There's no smoking, no no cooking or anything. Obviously, it's got plenty of preservatives. So it's a salami. In it. Okay, so it's it's dry cured sausage. Correct. Do you want to describe the yeah, process? Yeah, I mean, it a sounds bit? like it sounds like a Genoa. Well, it's interesting you say that. That is the town in Wisconsin it comes from. What did you say? <laughs> what did you just say? There you go. Oh, Genoa. Yeah. Oh, you mean Genoa? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what you just described sounds like a Genoa sausage in Italy. Yeah, and in Italy, it's Genoa. Right, right. Um, it it's the recipe that is made around here came over on a boat with six families from, well, Campidelcino, or I don't know, I butchered that, but that that was the old country town that it came from, and all and those families, all those families settled in Genoa, Wisconsin. That's how we pronounce it, but right, um, or Genoa. Gotcha. But yeah, it's just, and it's very, very, like centrally located to, to the shores of the Mississippi. We have a weird little Italian pocket yeah. here. Hmm. And I was just curious. Well, I know that uh, I know that Kenosha does. Really? I've been to really? Yeah, we're yeah we're in that weird little. Uh, you've probably heard of the Driftless region over by La Crosse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's right along there. Along yeah, I did an event at the Charmont a couple of years ago. Well, that's a good place. When were you there? Three, four years ago? 2018, I think. New Year's Eve? We were probably there. <laughs> <laughs> New Year's Eve, but it was definitely 2018. What? Oh, staying on the topic of the sausage, is there any... What your, what's your go-to sausage recipe when it comes to venison? Fresh or dried? Dried. dried. Right, um, I've got it hanging right now. It's in Buck Buck Moose. It's the it's a it's the spiritual ancestor of summer sausage. It's a Dutch sausage called Boren Metwurst, and it's basically what summer sausage wishes it could be. That sounds good. Yeah, that's we'll a be, great. We'll be making that. You need, need to buy Buck Buck Moose in order to find aged. it. It's dry aged more like a salami, but not quite as hard as like a as like a pepperoni stick. Um. And it's it's you know you know you've had bad summer sausage and typical summer sausages and like I can I can take it or leave that but this is a good old school dry aged you know hung for a while sausage that's that's real nice because of similar spices though. Well, we really really appreciate your time. And what if people who are listening, what is the place, number one place for them to find you to see kind of everything that you're working on? 
um, business-wise. And then if you want to give one thing that beyond business, maybe you're you're just passionate about that you want people to take a look at. Well, I think the easiest way to find me is um, you can always Google my name, Hank Shaw. I'm the only one that comes up. Um, I think uh, the core of what I do is hunter, angler, gardener, cook, which is the easiest way to get to that on the Internet is either to Google that name or to go to hunttogethercook.com. I am very active on Instagram where I'm huntgathercook. And uh, I'm pretty active on the Facebook. I, I run a private Facebook group. Uh, it's called Hunt, Gather, Cook, and it's one of those deals where in order to keep the drama to a minimum, uh, I ask people questions before they can get in. So just tell, uh, when you answer the question, just say that you heard heard me through this podcast, and then I will let you in. But it's a great source of, it's kind of like the Borg for wild food. Like, there's 21,000 of us, and of all different stripes all over the world, and the only thing that unites us all is that we are here to learn how to cook wild foods better. And it's been, it's been a really, really great, you know, slice of the, of the internet, which is pretty rare to say in this day and age, which is so much toxicity around there. But it's a nice place to just like, hey, you know, I'm, I, I have all the questions that you asked me today could have been asked on that group and, and, and you would have gotten a great response. So that's, those are probably the three main places. Well, we appreciate your, appreciate everything, man. We appreciate what you do, bringing a lot of you. I mean, you bring a ton of different people into the hunting world, and that's something that's that's very important. And once again, thanks for joining us, Hank Shaw. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Hank.